Real style is about much more than fashion. Real style starts with being comfortable in your own skin. Let's take a journey inside style with your host, style expert, George Worrell. Welcome to Inside Style DC Radio.gov 96.3 HD4. I'm your host, George Worrell, and welcome to our show today. I have the pleasure of introducing uh, a wonderful, wonderful man that I've heard so much about, and I'm excited to have in the studio today, Mr. Fred Cook, who is the go to attorney here in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> and listen, that's just, I have like five pages of stuff. We don't have time to go through all of the things of your accomplishments. Let me just start by saying, when you were a young man, did you ever think and what was the motivation to start you on this career path of what I call excellence? Oh, man, I don't know. I I, I didn't have any (laughs) any great vision as a young person. I, I was mostly just trying to. Uh, keep out of my father's reach so he couldn't grab me and choke me. But, <laughs> but no, I, I think uh, I was very fortunate uh, growing up here in D.C. I had some wonderful teachers mm-hmm. who cared about the students they taught. Mm-hmm. And I remember I had a teacher in the fifth grade who, one named Ms. Teague, uh, who told me, uh, who was the first teacher to actually convince me mm-hmm. that. I had the ability to do things if I chose to apply myself. And that was that was important mm-hmm. for a you know 11 12 year old kid mm-hmm. to to sort of make somebody reach out and say, you know, you you can do something with yourself. You you don't have to be a knucklehead. And uh and then I I kept fooling around. I didn't do a whole lot more, but <laughs> by the time I got to Howard University, uh, it really was an alma mater in the in the true sense of the word. It was a second mother. It was a place where I began to develop as a as a more whole person. Mm-hmm. Met lots of people from around the country, mm-hmm. around the world. Thought some different thoughts than I had ever thought before, and really began to develop a sense of purpose. Okay, why were you here? What was this about? Is this just a place where you can come and party and have a good time? Mm-hmm get a degree and say, I've got one and you don't, or is there something more to it? And that was the beginning of instilling in me the idea that, you know, it's, it's, it's hackneyed, but to be part of something bigger than yourself, mm. to, to be part of the larger world and to make a difference from where you were. And being black. Oh, well, the black <laughs> thing was, was, was critical during that time at Howard University. It was mm-hmm. absolutely essential mm-hmm. uh, to my development because talking to, to, to young black people from Africa, from the Caribbean, it brought a different perspective of what black was and, and a different sense of uh, pride, if you will, mm-hmm. that we didn't we really weren't an oppressed people, right. except if we wanted to be. And so okay. you had to free your mind to think a little bit differently and uh, understand that black folks in the United States literally were descendants of kings and queens. And uh, Timbuktu and Al Kiboland and all that went on on the continent mm-hmm. was part of my history too. So mm-hmm. we, we we didn't come out of trees. We trees, we, we, right. we got the people who were in caves out of the caves so they could understand how okay. to navigate the world. So I, I, it was very very important to me in, that, in, in my development. Wow. What part um, did the military? play uh, in your career and your thought process. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, you know you, you've learned too much. Okay. I, I, I was in ROTC, junior ROTC in high school at mm-hmm. McKinley Technical High School. Okay. 
And that was a good experience because it taught me some things about leadership. It taught me that leadership was getting people to do stuff they didn't know they wanted to do or that they could do. Could do. They could, you could motivate people. Mm-hmm. And so I began to get a much better sense of discipline. I learned that I could supervise my peers. If, if I had a higher rank than they, then my job was to supervise them. Even though they were my friends, even though we were the same age, you, you learn that hierarchical thing. Mm-hmm. So that was the beginning of that. Then at Howard, I was in ROTC again. And I spent eight years in the United States Air Force uh, dealing with the real military and mm-hmm. all the problems with it. You learn that it's a microcosm of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same problems that exist in civilian life exist in the mm-hmm. military. You have to manage those. Um, the, the black-white thing is is just as real in the military mm-hmm. as it is in civilian life. I had a senior uh, sergeant one day. I was in his office to visit his commander. And he was a good old boy from someplace in Alabama or Georgia. And I was sitting at his desk waiting for his boss to, to, to let me into the office to talk to him. And he looked at me and he said, Captain, I've been in the Air Force 30 years. I ain't never seen a black jag. <laughs> wow. And but but he was he was really telling me something telling me, yeah. that, that he felt. But he was really very good because his he was absolutely Air Force. And he, his vision was, if the Air Force saw fit to make you a captain, if the Air Force saw fit to make you a lawyer, then my job is to salute, say yes, sir, and to help you do what you had to do. And and it wasn't about whether he liked me or not. His thing was, this: these are the rules, and I play by the rules, and that's what you do, and I'll do what I do. It was was amazing. It's almost like Truman felt that desegregating the military was more about the Constitution and that how he really felt. Right, right. It had nothing to do with personal feelings yeah. because he was not somebody that believed That's right. in civil rights or yeah. black people were equal. But the Constitution he believed in. That, that's where this guy was. He didn't want to have a <laughs> cup of coffee with me. He didn't want to sit <laughs> around. He didn't go out. <laughs> nothing. nothing. But, 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 but on the job. This is how it is. This is how it is. And he, and he was perfectly okay with that. He says, you know, they decided that above my pay grade, so I'm good with that. But you know what? In, in many instances, when those things happen that way and people get to see your work ethic and who you really are, that helps for change. Oh, yeah. It's not always, you know, you're protesting and saying that we have to demand this before somebody knows you. Not to say that that's right or wrong, but... Right. He got to know who you really were and kind of judge maybe my thinking isn't correct. He probably wouldn't tell you that, but, you know. Oh, no, no. That that, that happened to me many times in my career when you – because, well, you're not completely tone deaf. You sense that resistance, that that, that, Mm -hmm. that disrespect. But when you do your job, when you perform well, it evolves. The Mm -hmm. relationship evolves. And people say, well – Oh, yeah, I guess you do know what you're talking about. Talking about. <laughs> and you, you kind of, and, and so it changes the dynamic somewhat. I mean, it's not like they become bosom buddies or anything, but mm-hmm. they but they do respect the fact that not only can the Negro walk and chew gum at the same, same time, time, but he actually may know something about the law. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> just a little. Just a little. Just a little. Just a little. How, and so that was good. How did you meet Marion Barry? Oh, man. I met Marion when I was on the campus of Howard University, uh, a number of times, but not close friends or anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the SNCC people would come to campus and talk to us. They were five, ten years older than, than most of us on campus at that time. Mm-hmm. And I met him. Um, 
and it was okay. Uh, and then when I was here in the city and he was mayor, I really avoided the political thing. I was so busy. I thought building my law practice and trying to be a good lawyer and mm -hmm. parent for my children, uh, that I really wasn't involved in that. And um, a friend of mine who wanted to be the city attorney called me and asked if I knew how to contact Marion. And I did. I knew his legal advisor, a guy named Herb Reed, who was one of my law professors. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll talk to Herb and see if I can get you a meeting. Well, Herb put me in contact with the headhunters, and I talked to the headhunter, recommended my friend. They said, okay. Um, then the headhunter called me back about two weeks later and said, um, you know, a number of people said that, that Mary needs to talk to you. you. You might be a good candidate. And I said, no, 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 I'm trying to help my friend. And he said, no, no, why don't you talk to Mary? So I thought at that point, maybe I had done enough work building my law practice that, that mm -hmm. it would be good to have a connection, connection. with Mary in, mm -hmm. in, 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 in the city. So I go to interview with Marion. Absolutely wrongheadedly arrogant. And my job, I thought, was to tell Marion, this is what you need to do to choose your lawyer. This is how your law office ought to work. And I'm just here to help you with my big brain from the, from the private sector. <laughs> and I talked to him for about an hour and 15 minutes. And it was inspirational. And before I knew it, I had resigned from my job. <laughs> <laughs> I agreed to work for him. It was just crazy. He pushed all the buttons. He talked about how I needed to be connected to the black community. He talked about mm -hmm. how I could make a difference in people's lives. He talked about all the stuff that I felt mm -hmm. and knew but wasn't acting on. And it it, it, it almost guilted me into saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I'll, I'll do this. So I go home and tell my then wife. I've agreed to take this job. I'm going to quit the law firm. Yeah, I'm going to take a pay cut. What? Huh? What? <laughs> <laughs> pay cut? Pay cut. <laughs> and, uh, and, and so that began um, roughly in 1986, mm -hmm. a relationship with Marion that lasted until he died, uh, until he passed away. Wow. Uh, it, was, it, was, it was a great relationship. Yeah. I enjoyed the heck out of working with him and around mm -hmm. him. Uh, he was stressful, but it was a lot of fun. Was what was the fun. most important thing you learned from that relationship? I think that what you learn is you want to make a profound difference in people's lives every day, mm -hmm. that, that your job as a public servant is to make a difference mm -hmm. uh, by doing your job as well as you can, mm -hmm. by being attuned to the needs of the people who don't have a voice mm -hmm. at the table. The people who have the money, have the access, mm -hmm. uh, they can take care of themselves. But mm -hmm. the people who don't, mm -hmm. that's who you're there to make sure those people are heard, those people are cared for, those people are cared about. Mm. I feel that way about fashion. You know, the first okay. half is that um, I had the women who could afford and men who could afford those $2,500 suits yeah. or the, the gown or all those kinds of things. They didn't need my help. Right. But the people who, you know, the second half of my career that are coming from trying situations, uh, drugs, alcohol, you know, restarting their lives, whatever right. it may be, those are the people that probably couldn't afford my um, right. services, but could utilize my yeah, services. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it just it's it's all it's all together. And right. um, that path that we're going, how did you know, how did you navigate your path? Like the political, you know, you were working in New York with WBLS. And, yeah, yeah. So tell us about that. How, how was that navigating different cities and states and doing different types of uh, law? Yeah, well, I, it was fun. First mm -hmm. of all, uh, I was in a great situation where uh, when I 
became a lawyer in a, as a telecommunications lawyer, it was at the time where the FCC was really trying to increase minority ownership of broadcast stations, radio, mm-hmm. TV, and participation in communication generally. And uh, I had worked for a really big law firm that had a lot of clients, and some of them thought it was a good idea to capitalize on this, to cash out, if you will, and sell to minority folk. So I had developed some relationships with, with minority business people, uh, minority political people, uh, fundamentally. I, I knew the politicians uh, through representation of, of, of them in, in difficult situations. And they turned me on to um, business people in their communities. Okay. And so I've, I was lucky to be able to go around the country and to meet local elected officials, local business people who wanted to become entrepreneurs in telecommunications. So um, I spent a lot of time traveling around the country. I, 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 one of the firm's clients was a company called Cox Communications. Mm. They own a number of radio and TV stations. They own the Atlanta Journal and Constitution. They were a large cable operator. And they wanted to divest themselves of a number of their cable systems and, and radio stations for that matter. Mm. And so my job was I had 60 cable systems to sell mm-hmm. that, my, that, that I was responsible for selling. Mm-hmm. And we went around the country and we tried to find minority businesses or groups with minority participation and traveled all around America uh, selling these cable systems. It was it was a blast. Uh, <laughs> it was it was it was crazy. Uh, Eureka, California, Oregon, California, Texas, Alabama, Georgia, wherever we were all over the place. Okay. And so it was it was a great opportunity to just meet a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, some who I knew. Some I had to call people up and say, "Look, I need to talk to somebody in." Uh, uh, what was that place? Uh, Saginaw, Michigan. Okay. I need. I need. I, I remember calling. Um, the mayor of Detroit and saying, I need to find a black person who's a, got some wherewithal and whatever in Saginaw. Can you hook me up? And he said, oh, yeah. He, <laughs> he called the guy up and I went to see the guy and, and we wound up selling the cable cable franchise. So did you know you had that selling skill? Nah, I didn't know that. Okay. I didn't know that. <laughs> so you I didn't did know it. That. But, you know, it's so when you go down that path and the things that you love and the things that you get involved in, do you feel that it it unearths some of the things that you may not know that you had within yourself? Oh yeah, I think that I think that's true. I think that's true. I, I think that some people know mm-hmm. their skill set. They they have more self awareness. I guess is the word to use. Mm-hmm. They get what they can do and they accentuate it or emphasize it. And some people, it's revealed to them. They didn't know they could do stuff like that. Uh, and so uh, I, I consistently tell my law students that I teach uh, about being salespeople as a lawyer, that you are a salesperson. I, I never really thought about it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, when, one of the things I, when I went to law school initially, what I really wanted to do was be a litigator, be in court, try cases, hopefully win more than I lost. <clears throat> and one of the things I figured out <clears throat> Again, I'm really uh, an in- introvert. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Talking is, is not easy for me so for much. It's easier now than it ever was before, but it, but it's, it never was never really easy. Mm-hmm. But when I was a litigator and beginning to be a litigator, really, uh, 
I learned that it was a lot like acting. Mm. And it was, for me, almost an out-of-body kind of thing. There was this person mm -hmm. who was standing in front of these people doing stuff that the real me could never do. I, I, I'd never had any interest in being in front of crowds. But the job required that I do that. So this person, who really wasn't me, was doing <laughs> was, that yeah. and was talking to people. And it is... It's it's intoxicating. It it is so uh, electrifying to be in front of people, hmm. talking to them, trying to persuade them to believe what it is you're saying. And when you get the head nod, when you get yeah, then you know you're bringing it on. You know home. you bring it. You know, and and, and, it's, <laughs> and for me, it was all it was almost like I'm standing over here watching this person. Oh, you're watching you. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. Pretty weird. That's pretty. Yeah. And and but fortunately, my uh, my psychiatrist friends will tell me. I did have a merger of these two things, <laughs> and so I didn't become completely uh, right. psychotic, okay. and I could put them together. But it's about being able to sell. It's about being able to stand in front of somebody mm -hmm. or a group of somebodies and persuade them that what you're saying is of some use to them, that mm -hmm. they ought to take it in and consider it in a favorable sort of way. And and that's something that I, I learned that I could do. I didn't know I could do it. But it goes back to being a lawyer in the first place. I didn't really want to be a lawyer. I thought I needed to be a lawyer. Mm -hmm. And as it turns out, it was something that I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. And ego out of control here. It was something I was relatively good at. I, I had no idea that I could do it. I did it because I thought that's what black people needed. Oh, my God. J.R. Clark was just here, and he said almost the identical same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That he became an attorney because— um, that he thought the country, people, black people, needed representation. Absolutely. When Dr. King was assassinated in April 1968, April 4th, 1968, I was a junior at Howard University. Civil rights movement going on, anti-war movement going on. Dr. King's assassination really affected me. And I spent the summer trying to figure out what I could do to help build upon what Dr. King had started and was involved in. I was on my way to medical school, I thought. I was going to be a psychiatrist, I thought. Over the summer, I decided after a lot of thought and stuff, black people needed a lawyer more than they needed a doctor. Wasn't doc I, didn't, I didn't hate doctors. I just thought the, the, need. the need was there. And so that's when I said, I didn't know that I could do any of this. I just said, you know, I'm going to throw myself into this and I'm going to make myself the best lawyer I can be. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it will be useful. But but it was it was a mission. It wasn't mm -hmm. uh, it wasn't something that I had thought about from when I was five years old. I wanted to be a lawyer. Um, you know, the very first lawyer I ever met in my life was the first day of law school. I didn't know any lawyers. You know, I, I'm, I'm a first generation high school graduate, let alone first generation college. So I so the lawyers were not in my life. I knew lawyers from watching on television. I knew lawyers from reading newspapers. And I knew, based on that, I knew that's what I needed to do. That's what black people needed. Mm -hmm. So that's why I went. And as it turns out, like I said, beyond happy that I enjoy it, and, and I'm also it. I'm relatively good at it. So <laughs> yeah, you're I'm, very, I'm, I'm good, you're very good, good at it. So, you, yeah. Wow. So, what do you get most out of talking to your students? at the stage of your life right now in your career? Sure. I, I think uh, it's the exchange of ideas. It's, it's getting different perspectives. It, again, it's part of being a salesperson. Uh, it, it's, it's a constant um, human study. 
you need to understand people to be able to reach them. You need to know how they think, why they think, what they think. And young people think differently than I do. Uh, I learned a long time ago, uh, ideas don't have any seniority associated with them. Uh, you can have old people with bad ideas and young people with great ideas. So you need to embrace ideas from wherever they come. So I enjoy the education they provide me, mm-hmm. uh, that they, they keep me focused on things. I, I, I tell my peers all the time, when I talk to the students about things I know, things I've done, things I've learned, mm-hmm. a lot of it is, 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 is history, is experiential. But the kids don't have that experience. So they don't think the same way. So they will say to me, well, why can't we do this? Mm-hmm. Now, I know from experience, at least I think I do, well, that, that won't work. They don't know that. And they say, well, why can't we do it that way? And sometimes I have to go back and think and say, you know what? We probably could do it that way. Mm-hmm. And, and were you me, saying the same thing at their age? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was telling old people, get, get yeah. the hell out of the way. You, you people just, you're taking up oxygen. You need to go away. <laughs> but that's, but that's, that's part of it, is, is that, yeah. that I want to welcome new ideas. I want to encourage them to think big thoughts, to think outrageous thoughts, to think mm-hmm. outlandish thoughts, and go put them into to, to operation. So your way of dressing and how you approached your career, going to the office socially and all those things. Do you feel the generation that you're teaching feels the same way? Do they have what they need in their closet? I mean, because things are rapidly changing, you know, especially after the pandemic, everything's very casual, people not at work and working from home and they're on travel. What are your thoughts about that? I'm I'm deeply disappointed. (laughs) They don't they don't have a sense of personal style. Again, they don't have to dress like me, but they 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 just wear anything. It seems I I guess that that could be personal style, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't seem to be a consistent style. Like I said, I was in ROTC. I wore uniforms, Mm -hmm. and there were rules about how you had to wear a uniform: Uh, shine your shoes, uh, tie, you know, whatever. Um, The first law firm I worked for had a very uh, strict dress code. Mm-hmm. We had a book that told you how you dress. You could not wear a sport coat in the office except on Saturday. They had to have a tie so on. So that was dressed down. Yeah, that was that was your dress down was you could wear a sport, sport coat, coat with a tie, tie, but on Saturday only. Wow. If you were in the office. Uh, Monday through Friday? Suits. Suits. Dark suit? suits. Suits. Light blue shirt, white shirt. Uh, what's that color called? Uh... Ecru. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> but, but you could not. No bone, no tan, no, no gray. No, no. no stripes, plaids. What is wrong with you? Get out of here. And and when you were in your office, you could take your suit jacket off. But when you went out of your office, just you to walk your, right off, you put your suit jacket back on. And they would they would they would uh, remonstrate you. They were like, "Hey, what are you doing?" And I go, "I'm just going to get a cup of coffee." No, no. Get your put your coat, put your jacket on. <laughs> <laughs> So that, so, book, yeah. so that, that so you were governed me. by that. So I, I, I you know, I, I, I sort of habituated to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, like the military, it's just a uniform. It, it's what you wear. It's what you wear to, to do what you do. And as I tell my students again, being a lawyer is not what you do. It's who you are. And that's why I present this way. And very much how you look. 
Washington yeah. is very unique in that way. And I think it will always be that way because government is the, the leading industry here. And um, you, you've been other places. I've lived in New York. And yeah. it can be you could have some jeans on and a sport jacket and go to a meeting. But pretty much it, that's not not here. Yeah, they look askance to you. I mean, I thought, you know, there was the, the, the kerfuffle when, you know, Obama had the temerity to wear a beige suit. Yeah. But 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 he wasn't the only one. He wasn't the only one, but they went crazy. But But what I did notice was that post his presidency, he doesn't wear ties. He has on, you know, crisp white or blue uh-huh. or whatever shirt, uh-huh. but no tie. No tie. And 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 I guess for an old guy, that strikes me. That, 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 that I noticed that. I kind of go, whoa, where's your tie, dude? So th- this is so funny you should say that. The night that we were at an event at the, uh, the African-American Museum, uh-huh. I talked about I gained weight yeah, and, yeah, 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 and yeah. I didn't have a tie on. Yeah. The first thing my father said to me, well, you didn't have a tie on. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, like it's, yeah. it. he doesn't go anywhere, form church, anything without a tie. Yeah. Um, I've and I grew kind of up in that, but I've kind of branched off a little bit yeah, yeah. to a oh, little no, I, more. I, of a I casual. Have yeah, I, I mm-hmm. have relaxed it a little bit. And so certainly during the pandemic time when I would not go to the office every day, I would go mm-hmm. periodically check mail, things like that. And I would go, but I would I would wear a suit, but I wouldn't wear a tie. I'd wear a sh- I'd wear a dress shirt, but not a tie. And I always felt like I'm playing hooky or something. I'm not really <laughs> I'm not really doing the right thing. Uh, but I but now I, I'm back and I wear ties most of the time. What is your decision making process for yourself? Do you have a guide that you go by? Is it your gut? Is it a multitude of things like that? Like you're de- when you make a decision, whether if it's for the law, if you're buying a house or travel, mm-hmm. what mechanism do you use? I don't know. I, I guess I, I hadn't really thought about that. I, I, I think that decisions for clients for how I'm going to present things mm-hmm. are really driven by a real fundamental thing of would you want your mother to read this in the post tomorrow? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and if the answer is I don't think I would want mom to read that, mm-hmm. then I don't do that. Um, I, I, I I I try real hard not to do that. Um, <laughs> other stuff, uh, it, it, it's more mechanical. Okay. Um, I try to I try to reduce it to some kind of quantification of of cost benefit. You know, like you mentioned, buying a house or buying a car or you know, right now I'm wrestling with whether I'm going to buy another car. And I'm, I'm, I'm going through this whole crazy process of trying to figure out, should I buy a car? Why am I buying a car? Do and I what need do a car? Want? What do I want? <laughs> you know, am I going to keep the car for the next 12 years? You know, all that kind of stuff. Should I lease the car? Right. So I'm going through this crazy <laughs> process, which is a little nuts because it's know, just but a car. <laughs> but, but, but you know what? I've had clients like that. Like we would go to like when Sack Chandel was open. Yeah. And she would go in and they would pull out all of this stuff and she would try it all this and she would leave with maybe, maybe one or two items. Yeah. Because she focused on how long am I going to wear this? Where am I going to wear this? What's the value of it? You know, all of that stuff that I learned. So, I mean. Yeah. When I used to work in retail, one of the things I, I, the guys who taught me said, never give a client more than three 
the rule of three, because if they get more than three, they'll get confused. And you're there all day. You're all, you're all and day. They, so they, they give probably them, give end three. up with nothing. Yeah, if, if they, <laughs> you know, you, 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 as soon as they start going past three, you say, oh, let's get this out of here. Let's, let's, let's focus on these. And so that's in my head, too, is like, keep it simple. Mm-hmm. Try to keep the range of options relatively narrow so you don't get lost in the weeds mm-hmm. of, oh, I like this part of this one and that part of that one and this part of that one. And you can't, then you, then you can't make a decision because you're doing too, too large a comparison. So I try to keep it simple. And finishing up, I want to just ask you, what's the latest best book that you've read? Oh man. Oh God, I can't remember the name of it. It was it's a book about uh it's not really uh well it's not really all that new. Mm-hmm. I read a book, uh, oh God, what's his name? Richard Wright, right? Richard Wright? Um, no, 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 I'm trying to remember the guy's last name. Uh, it's a book about redlining. It's okay. a book about um, about redlining in America, uh, mm. how it came to be and how uh, what the aftermath of it is. Okay. Uh, and explains um, a big part of the wealth disparity between black folk and white folks in America because going of on for... policies mm-hmm. uh, implemented by the federal government large, largely uh, from uh, the 30s forward. Uh, and that 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 was that was really that, that's the kind of stuff I read. I, I I unfortunately don't read too much fiction. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> you kind of look at it like that. So <laughs> you know, the, well, yeah. Fred, I I want to have you back because oh, you I'd love are to come so, back. yeah. This has been an, a, a fabulous conversation. Thank you for coming. We've been talking with Fred Cook, um, amazing attorney here in Washington D.C. All things. Uh, we thank you, my brother, for just paving that way and continuing the journey that we're following um, after your path. Thank you for uh, tuning into Inside Style. This is DC Radio 96.3 HD4. I'm your host, George Worrell. And remember, real style starts with being comfortable in your own skin. We'll see you next time. Thanks. You've been listening to Inside Style with style expert George Worrell. For more information, visit georgeworrellstyle.com or dcradio.gov.